streamlined design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. The commercial real estate business comes preloaded with a lot of shorthand. Class A, Class B, CMA, ARV, FSBO, ROI, RSF. And now, after 14 months of working from home, WTF. Workers are cabin feverish but gun-shy. An April 12, 2021 article in Slate about how employees view employer reopening plans with suspicion led with the quote, I do not trust people in the same way, and I don't think I ever will again. A new class of graduates have entered the workforce looking for opportunities. Office space was shrinking before the pandemic. Rents are volatile, and nobody knows what's going to happen next. With us to make sense of it all is Ruth Culp Haber, founder of New York City's Wharton Property Advisors and a member of the Real Estate Board of New York. Ruth, welcome to the show. Okay, thank you, Ted. So, looking at a recent International Monetary Fund study in North and Latin America, office-based transactions are down more than 70% last year. Commercial real estate is a first-order impact sector. When something goes wrong in commercial real estate, it seeps into banking, it seeps into institutional investing, it affects everybody. And an adverse shock to the commercial real estate sector can have ripple effects across the economy. It puts downward pressure on commercial real estate prices, and it negatively affects borrowers' ability to get funding to continue operations. So what is happening in commercial real estate where we are in the pandemic right now? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Ted. And uh, <clears throat> that was quite a synopsis of the current situation. <laughs> um, where to start? So <clears throat> we are one year in to a massive experiment and alternative kind of work, uh, namely work from home. Um, this is something that was intended to be, as I said, an experiment, and it has turned out to be extremely successful in some cases and make do in others. Um, everyone has thought, okay, once we're vaccinated, businesses will just start going back to the office. Uh, people are vaccinated, you're safe, you're not going to get sick, and companies will start coming back. But that has not happened. Right. And we see now the situation is not simple at all. So if we go back to early March in, in 2020, the thinking was, the popular thinking, whether it was correct or, well, obviously it wasn't correct, but the popular thinking was, oh, you know, we, we take six to eight weeks, we stay home, we flatten the curve, and and then it's all just business as usual. And that clearly is not what happened and probably was was never well thought out to begin with. So, so what we've seen is that there are kind of two, two big arguments framing what you've described. In one case, things are going great, and the others, people are making do. In, in the... 
the making do camp is the premise that companies function better when everyone is co-located in the same physical location. And, and the other argument is that, you know, work carries on just fine when workers are remote and we, we've got the, the, the digitization of work, everything's on the cloud, things are, are hunky dory. What are you seeing from, from the industry and the clients regarding those two basic operating theories? Yeah, well, I'm seeing that for every company, it's different. For many companies, such as law firms, such as a lot of professional businesses, there is an apprenticeship system in place that brings up younger people, that helps train younger people, not just younger people, new people to the mm -hmm. organization. And for many of these companies, it, it's very hard to grow at all. It's very hard to train their workers and the collaboration is needed. You know, the young lawyer needs to watch the partner and you can't right. do that in Zoom. You need to, to watch what he or she does while he's on the phone with the client. You need to see how they spend their time. You need to see the way they talk. You need to be able to grab them for impromptu discussions. And you just can't do that on Zoom. Right. Right. Well, and you not just in the law. You you bring up an interesting point, which which is it's an aspect that feeds the diversity gap, particularly in in law firms and professional services firms. Which is partners have a tendency, and it's usually an unconscious tendency, to give work to people that remind them of themselves. So you you they a partner will take on an associate that that is like them, and when you have an overwhelmingly white male profession then you, you start to, to have undertrained people of diverse populations within that scheme. And that's overall a disservice to the profession. So as the, the new associates come in, if they're not, you know, you can regulate around that. You can, you can assign, managing partners can assign partners and associates together, and that can, can help minimize that issue, the, the I give work to people that are like me issue. But if they're not all in the same place, then you lose the ability to be top of mind for the partner who's, who's charged with training you, you, you lose all of the informal training that comes from face to face working and collaboration. And there's no good way of doing that other than a really disciplined effort to make sure that there is a lot of communication going on by zoom, by telephone, by what have you that, that isn't face to face in an office, in an office place. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, you know, and as I said, it's not just law. It's banking. It's It's all aspects of finance. It, it's all aspects of, you know, when you're a kid out of school and you join an organization of any kind, how do you, how do you learn the ethos? How do you learn the job, the culture, the, how do you, how do you learn the business? Yeah. Sitting in your kitchen on a computer. Right. So, so this raises the question, is the notion that younger or newer employees need training where older employees prefer working from home? Is it myth or is it fact? Um, sometimes, you know, it's both. It, it's, there's a lot of theories around who wants to work from home. Um, I had um, a, a pretty famous uh, real estate finance professor at Wharton, Peter Lineman, who um, 
has some very definitive theories about why you must have the office and everyone will go back to the office. And he said, there are two reasons. Number one, spouses. Number two, kids. Okay. He said, you give the average employee a choice of sitting in their small house or apartment all day with their spouse and their kids versus taking a commute into a big city office, hands down, every single employee will get into that office and want to be in that office. See, I, I I understand why that's the case. Personally, I have no good frame of reference for that because I've been working from home for the last 14 months. But, you know, my, my kids are older and they're delightful to have around. Um, uh, annoyingly, though, I think my cat just earned an LLM in dispute resolution from, from Pepperdine Law <laughs> School. So that was a complicating factor. Um, so what you're saying is is echoed by some some pretty large groups. Um, BOMA International did a, a study, the COVID-19 Commercial Real Estate Impact Study, in which they found that 74% of respondents said that, that in-person offices are operationally vital to their business and mm-hmm. their business's long-term growth and success. 64% of their respondents saw significant value in on-site business operations as they as they related to to three key elements of corporate success, and those are collaboration, coaching, and as you mentioned, culture. And nearly half of all respondents said they're going to seek to reduce the size of their square footage. A a minority, less than 10%, wanted to increase. So while everybody seems to feel that having an office is important, maybe not so much of an office. So you're saying, and I agree that there will be some downsizing. That seems to be a, that. That seems to be a continuation of the pre-COVID trend. I mean, it looked like, based on 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 what the mar- how the markets were moving, there there was a push to get below one desk per per employee pre-COVID, and then everyone went home. Yeah. Well, um, yes, I think you're right. Um, you know, Jamie Dimon last week said he is bringing all his workers um, back to work. But the 100 people coming back will only need 60 seats. So in other words, they're going to be working on a hybrid model where some people come. It's gonna, I, and I really think this is where the majority of businesses are, is going, is, are going, is to a hybrid model where there is some work from home and there's some working in the office. That's what most people want. Most mm-hmm. people want to go in two or three days a week. But that does mean that companies are going to reduce their footprint in office spaces. So I, I, I sort of entered the pandemic thinking that the absolute worst thing to be right now would be a, a commercial office space landlord. And, and I haven't seen much in the last 14 months to dissuade me of that point. How wrong am I? <laughs> oh boy, Ted, you, are, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, well, except for the only worse thing, perhaps, than being a commercial real estate landlord is being a commercial real estate broker, okay? <laughs> oh, <darn laughs> which is what I am. Um, no, but really, the commercial landlords are in a total state of shock and have been for a year. Um, you know, in, in public, they really have to deny the reality. 
um, they have to act like nothing is going on. Nothing's different. Everyone is going to come back to the office. I will tell you, most of the major landlords, I'm talking about SL Green, Vornado, Brookfield, they, Durst even, in the major buildings in New York, they have not lowered their asking rents in the last year. Think about that. That That's so... So that was my next question, which is what's happening with rents. So square is rental lettable square feet are going up and, and companies are looking to, to rent less square footage, but rents are staying stable. Yes. Yeah, so what's happening, the way rents work is not a simple equation um, because there's asking rents. And then there's net effective rents, right. which is the asking rent plus the um, concessions, such as free rent, right. which can be very substantial. So, for example, you know, at One World Trade Center, um, which is um, one of the largest buildings in New York and in the world, um, the asking rent there is still $70 a foot but they are now offering about 16 months of free rent on a 10 year lease. Okay. So that, that takes more than 10% off the, the asking rent when That's you factor exactly in the entire right. lease, lifespan and $70 a square That's foot. Exactly right. That is kind of the class a of class a office space prices, isn't it? Um, well, for New York, it's uh, for downtown New York. It's pretty high. We have, a, a range in New York now, I'd say from about 40 up to 200 a foot. Mm. Um, and 200 a foot comes with, you know, buildings loaded with amenities, right? Yes. And, and all the landlords, you know, this is one thing they have done. Um, this is something we discussed before, you know, landlords now have to, my opinion, they have to make it attractive for tenants to come into the office. I mean, right. they have to sell these offices. Okay, now they've all put out, you know, disinfectant and signs, which way to go, so no one runs into each other. But they they're going to have to do a lot more. Yeah, uh, you know, they 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 do have a lot of common areas in these buildings and coffee bars. But again, I think landlords are going to have to do a lot more. To they're going to have to sell this office space to companies. It's not going to be a given anymore that every company just needs a major presence in the office. Right. So, you know, I think the child care is what will really would really help the situation. Well, that that's an interesting point. So, a lot of a lot of a lot of social advances have happened because businesses drove them. And and they drove them because they were pursuing the the workplace that would get them the best bottom line. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to attract the best and brightest engineers, or you want to attract the best and brightest financial analysts, then you need the things that attract them. And at the end of the day, everyone's paying around the same and the prospects for, for, for promotion are around the same. So it, it comes down to workspace. And, and well, uh, you know, there's, there is this view that a lot of what goes into recruiting top talent depends on how the workspace is perceived unless that top talent would rather stay home, in which case they're agnostic as to childcare and the, the, how good the gym is and what restaurants are in the building. So they don't have to go out in the rain at lunch. But 
you know, it's these ancillary things that businesses make priorities because they want to keep the best people and attract the best employees that goes into their decision-making. And, and, you know, ironically, that's, that's one of the things that led the advancement of LGBT rights in the workplace. It's led a lot of social advancements in the workplace around diversity and equality because you want, you don't want your employees to leave because they don't feel welcome. Now that, now that the mainstream has, has gotten that under, uh, un, undercover, it's, you know, what's next. And, and, and so now we're at living space. Um, and so the race is toward class a and premium class a, and if it's $200 a square foot, super premium class a office space that has, you know, so you never have to leave. Mm-hmm. And when, when I was, when I was working for a tech company back in the nineties, um, you knew something had gone wrong when the cafeteria opened on a weekend because it meant the engineers were being told they had to work seven days a week. You know, the, the next thing was going to be cots in the break room. When, so <laughs> it's a far cry from amenities means something bad has happened and we're off schedule. Now it's amenities just get the employees in the door. Right. So, yeah. so how do landlords need to differentiate themselves to retain tenants and to attract new tenants? Yeah. Well, my opinion is there are a lot, there are a lot of things they can be doing. Um, they, um, number one, they need to cut the prices. They need to cut rents. Uh, they need to offer flexibility. You know, the standard office lease has been for a five to 10 year term with, with no cancellation rights. They're going to need to offer cancellation rights. Um, to tenants, they're going to need to offer some protection in the leases in case there's another pandemic. So that, you know, most of the tenants in New York have not been able to use their offices in the last year, but yet they've been paying their rent. I mean, where else is there a service that you can't use, but you have to pay for, Mm -hmm. or you are in default of the lease and will be sued. And, and protections for tenants that existed for places like restaurants and other, uh, other types of, of um, completely yes. closed businesses. Do they, have they existed in, in New York for, for commercial office space tenants? Have there been eviction protections or are they just out there paying rent yes. for office space they can't use? No, there have been eviction protections. Um, and, you know, the, the, the major landlords, the good buildings, they're getting most of their rent. The problem is going to come when these leases come due. Yeah. Real estate is a very slow moving process. Okay. But as you said at the outset, Ted, eventually the problems in real estate are going to be flowing into other aspects of our economy. And it started already. So a recent KPMG international study showed 88% of real estate industry executives thinking that COVID has encouraged interest in flexible office concepts and, and flexible business models around those concepts. And, and you mentioned flexibility, uh, flexibility on, on price, flexibility on term, flexibility on what happens when the next pandemic hits. Is, is this going to be, is, is companies being prepared for the next pandemic going to be part of the, the, the next round of lease negotiations when, when the, the first wave of renewals happens? Yeah, I think that's going to be a standard clause in office leases is um, pandemic protection that if you can't use your space due to a pandemic, you won't have to pay the rent. Yeah, I, I would. I, I tell my clients to ask for. 
to get it. And, and, and landlords are just sitting back hoping that nobody asks for it. I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. So this gets back to the systemic shock of trouble in the real estate market. You know, when, when the way you get trouble in the commercial real estate market is when the value of, or, or the price you paid and the price you borrowed to pay of the property becomes disconnected from the revenue the property produces. And a perfect example of that is you, you buy a building for $500 million that the rents justified and then the rents plummet. And all of a sudden your $500 million of debt is attached to a $300 million building, which means you will never be able to pay that loan off. And, and so kind of one of a small group of things happens. You sell it at a loss and pay the debt. You end up in a receivership. The bank takes the building uh, in a friendly foreclosure, or you become a passenger in, in the wonderful thing that is a single asset real estate bankruptcy. But you know, nothing, none of those are good. Yeah. So how are, how is the industry, how is the property market going to absorb the reality that rents may be high now, but that's because the lease renewals haven't started and that's going to yeah. change once the, the power is in the hands of the tenants. Yeah. The, all excellent points you make. And I think we could easily be headed for a full scale commercial real estate crisis, which could then turn into a banking crisis. Right. However, we're not there yet for two reasons. Number one, due to the staggered way that leases are done in buildings. So most major buildings, their leases don't expire all at the same time. Right. So, yeah, it's, you know, each year only 10% of the leases in, in a typical building expire. And landlords do that purposely. Sure. So that they don't have the rent risk. And then there's another very important factor that is buoying the, the commercial real estate market, which is the worldwide interest rate situation. We are at, as you know, for the last 20 years, practically zero interest rate scenario. There is a desperate hunt for yield on the part of every asset manager, every pension fund. It's a huge amount of cash on the sidelines. And one of the places where you can get a, a decent yield is the commercial real estate sector. Right. You know, multifamilies at 3%, you know, office buildings at, at 4% yield. I mean, it's hard to even believe with the risk that's being taken with those yields, but that is why. So that keeps much of the commercial real estate sector liquid. But have is there the been, money is, is the money still post-pandemic flowing into these, these investments? Yes, it is. Interesting. Yes, it is. And it's, look, it's, it's off from what it was a year ago, no question. But the, but the whole issue is, again, you know, asset managers need to put their money somewhere. And, you know, we're at negative yields in, in much of the fixed income markets. So right. that is what is keeping these commercial operators afloat. And my opinion is this could go on for a long time. And the other thing that's happening is forbearance on loans, mm -hmm. which is that banks do not want to take back the problem properties. They do not want them on the balance sheet. So they're just extending, extending the loans. Right. 
And are are they are they extracting something for extending, or is this pure amend, extend, and pretend? <laughs> well, I like that expression, and um, you know, I don't know the specifics of each situation, but I do know that um, you know the the these properties are not being foreclosed on. Yeah, yeah. So, what kind of space will companies want? now as we transition out of this pandemic? Yeah, excellent question. And they don't know. You know, I'm representing uh, several companies now whose leases are due in the next four or five months. So, and what I'm seeing is that the CEOs are going into the office and they're there by themselves for the most part. They can't get their workers to come in. So, they don't know what kind of space would bring the workers in. They don't know who will come in. They, they can't get their arms around what will make sense. Now there's, you know, space planning companies that are, that are trying to help, but the situation is complicated because a lot of these workers now, they like work from home and they don't want to come into the office. Right. Right. So we're going to take a break in a second, but very quickly, with all these we've discussed thus far, do you think COVID has shown that most businesses don't need all of their workers housed together or has it revealed the limitations of home working? You know, I think it's both. Um, I think it's both. And I, I think only long-term economic results of these companies will, will tell, but yeah. I think the collaboration is needed. And I think a lot of people are pretty stir crazy at home and mentally, <laughs> want to get out and go back to the office as, as, as the good professor said, spouses and kids. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with New York city based real estate expert, Ruth Culpaber about the hot mess that is commercial real estate post COVID. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B I Z disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Stick around while we take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302 
655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. If you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hello. We are talking about the challenges facing commercial office space owners in the time of COVID with New York City-based commercial real estate expert Ruth Culp Haber of Wharton Property Advisors. Ruth, before the break, you were talking about the money that continues to flow into commercial real estate investments. Is this money equity or is it being, is it debt? You know, I'd say it's both, Ted. Hmm. I mean, I, it's one thing for cheap debt to flow in because at, at worst you're left with the building. Um, equity, you're left with um, the memory. I, yeah. I, I think that's probably the charitable <laughs> way to put it. Um, you, you, uh, so that would, you would think that would be coming at a premium, but it may just be too soon to be realizing the effects of the pandemic. You know, and with, and with equity, of course, each building is different. Um, and, you know, no one is selling now unless they really have to sell. Right. Um, so, so the market well, overall in terms of transaction volume on the leasing side is off 90% from last year. Really? 90. Yeah. And, and that's... That that's with office space being only twenty six percent occupied nationwide. That that's yes, that's remarkable. And in New York, we are fourteen percent occupied. Right. Although uh, I'm I'm seeing reports today that 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 that, that the magic is going to start July first. Is is that the current plan that everything goes back to 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 February first, twenty twenty on July first? Look, I, I hope it happens, but again, what I'm seeing, what what's happening with these companies are they're realizing bringing workers back to the office is not that simple. Right. Right. So, you were talking earlier about what landlords need to do to differentiate themselves to to retain tenants to attract new tenants, um, and a lot of it is on quality of the property and amenities of the property. So that, that gives rise to a question. Uh, is, cla- is Class B office space doomed? Yeah, well, there's definitely a flight to quality. Yeah. Um, and the, the tenants that are in the market, before they could only afford Class B, now they can afford Class A. So that Class B is no question going to lag the market. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So there was... Um, there's a group outside of Boston, Massachusetts, that 
is is pushing this notion of converting class B office space to premium apartment housing because nobody needs class B office space in the Metro West region of, of Boston. Um, but you need to preserve the building. So turn it into, turn it into something for commuters. Um, people are looking at that here in New York as well. Um, again, that varies building by building and it depends on a lot of zoning issues. I think some of that will be happening. Um, there's, there's, there are other conversion projects that I think are interesting. And, you know, what's happening in New York to very mixed results is a lot of the hotels are, 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 are becoming homeless shelters. Hotels. Yes. Interesting. And, and is this a, is this a permanent change? Have the hotels just decided we are giving up any semblance of having a future business? We're going to give this hotel over permanently for a, a social purpose, or are they viewing this as a, a temporary measure? You know, it's a temporary measure. It's, it's B class hotels. Right. Okay. In B locations. Right. Uh, and even those are facing a lot of community pressures because some of them are in residential areas. Right. Um, so those are being converted to, to homeless shelters, um, which requires very little work. Well, I mean, yeah, you've, you've got, you've got bath facilities, you've got beds, you, you've there, I mean, people live in hotels. So. Exactly. Now, on, on the other hand, converting the office buildings to residential, regular residential use is a very big job. Yeah. And many buildings, it can't be done. Um, you need, it would be buildings with operable windows. Right. Um, the floor plates can't be too, too large, you know, floor plates, no more than like 8,000 feet. Um, so, but, but a lot, um, but, but their operator, their developers looking at doing it. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that if you, if you say that a, a residential building and a an office building are both, you know, kind of square, kind of tall, every floor basically looks the same when you gut it. The, the big difference between the two is going to be you're going to spend six months putting plumbing into, in, into the building for, for, for residential work. That's right. Plumbing, kitchens. Yep. Um, then there's also, you know, you can't, you need window, you need a lot more windows and you need operable windows. Most of the buildings in the yard don't have operable windows. They're, they're just sealed shot windows. And is that a zoning requirement that residential residential um, yes. facilities have to have operable, operable windows? windows. Yeah. Okay. And then of course the venting for the kitchen. So right. there's, they're big jobs. Yeah. Um, um, but it's been done. Um, it's been done with particular success in some of the older buildings in the wall street area. Hmm. So I think it'll be done more. I'm not, it won't be, it won't have a massive impact on the market. I mean, I see other users ultimately going into some of these office buildings if they can't be leased as office space, <clears throat> such as schools and healthcare related uses. Hmm. That's interesting. So healthcare as in making them decentralizing medical care, getting away from the one hospital, every X number of blocks that will never make money and turning them into more focused, urgent care type of Exactly. Urgent care, um, ambulatory spaces, spaces, doctor's offices. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Well, that that could actually, I, I you know, I really, I, I'm setting myself up for it because I was about to say that could be the shot in the arm that the healthcare industry in New York City needed, and that's just a terrible <laughs> pun. But there really is no better way to say it. Um, that you know, having more decentralized locations may be exactly what what that business model needs to survive long term. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, that I, I found in research, uh, KPMG International did a large study of, of commercial real estate. And from the tenant side, there has been and there continues to be a premium on properties that, that fall into the, the bailiwick of environmental, social, and governance sustainability, ESG sustainability. Um, 54% of industry executives reported that ESG had become more relevant in the time of COVID. 83% expected growing demand in the future for ESG buildings from tenants is any, is, and, and, and so in looking forward to what tenants are going to be looking for when their existing leases are up or when new tenants come into the, to the market, it, I guess my questions are, A, is anybody building right now? And B, if they're not, are they retrofitting to get to ESG compliance? And, and what does that really mean for the tenant? Yeah. Well, it's the newer buildings that have the ESG compliance, as you know. Um, and buildings that have been uh, hugely refurbished and renovated. Um, and, you know, it, it's, as you said before, it's a flight to quality because the, all the top buildings in New York have a focus on ESG. And so that will be part of the flight to quality. And those that don't have it will be left behind. So if I'm if I'm an employee at one of these firms that has prioritized ESG for its building, what does that what does it really mean to 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 me going into the office every day? You know, I, I don't think it's substantive changes that you would notice. However, it, what what I see is that basically the better buildings all meet the ESG requirements. Right. The better, nicer buildings. So with bigger windows, with better HVAC systems. Um, the, they are better managed. Yeah. So it, it really, if they're, if they're willing to commit to focusing on ESG, then that's a sign that they're, they're managing their property with a certain degree of intentionality yes. that's reflected in, in all of the user interface things. The elevators work, it's clean, it's well tended, things are fixed quickly. You're, you're not going to be passing out from recycled air by 1130 <laughs> in the morning. Uh, exactly. Okay. <laughs> And, and it sounds like the premium really is either on new buildings or very, very well-appointed, very well-refurbished re- kind of classic older buildings. Yes, of which there, there are a lot in New York. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, we talked about Class A office space. We talked about the problems facing Class B office space. Class C office space is, is kind of the value, the, for the value-driven if you're if you're looking at Class C space, you don't care what anybody comes to visit you thinks of your office space, and and you're just going for cheap rent. Yes, exactly. And, and you know there there is in in kind of the distressed business arena this I, I think general acknowledgement that you know Class C the the value dri- driven segment of the market sometimes is impervious to the things that worry everybody else, you know, the, the brand that's selling things that get sold at dollar general may not care quite as much about consumer preferences because the consumers of that product just aren't moved by, by market forces. 
is it the same thing in office space? You know, are, is class C just sort of churning along and no one really pays attention to it and they're not feeling a lot of distress because where are these people going to go otherwise? You know, look, I think the class C buildings are going to be hit worst of all. Yeah. Because the fact is, you know, there's, whereas before you could get class C space for $25 a foot. Now you can get class B space for $25 a foot. Right. So, you're just there. No one, there's no market. There's not going to be a market for that space anymore. Right. So everybody takes one step to the right. Everything exactly. becomes one tier less expensive. And so for the same dollars, people can get better space. The, the convert, the, the conversation then will be, are they really value driven or did they simply have a low price point? And, and that'll, I think be the, be what determines whether they move from class C to class B when they can, or if they just stay in class C and pay even less. Yeah, I, I, I think some of these Class C buildings, that's where the problems are really going to be most predominant um, because, and these also, the Class C buildings attracts the lesser quality tenants. These are the first ones that are going to be defaulting on their leases. They're not growing, they're shrinking or going out of business. And the landlords are going to be left with, with, with office spaces that they can't rent. Right. Right. So before the pandemic footprints were already shrinking to, to less than one desk per person. Is that continuing? I mean, how are, as, as companies kind of adapt to what this hybrid environment is going to look like, how are they, how are they looking to find the proper size and footprint? Yeah, it, it's, um, it's a difficult question for them and they're coming to terms with it, trying to figure out how this whole hybrid is going to work. I mean, how, how does it work? You know, you have to figure out who's coming and when, where do they sit? Is everyone going to have their own desk? Are they going to share desks? Or are they not going to want a desk out in a bullpen? People might want just offices. So companies are figuring it out, but they're doing it. This is, this is real time. And the, I, the whole concept is, look, this is an opportunity for these companies to save a lot of money on office space. Right. This is low-hanging fruit if you're a CFO. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to cut my footprint and I'm going to save my rent. My rental costs are going down by half. There was a, I, I just read an article about a company that was transitioning away from office space and they were, they were paying, they were giving every employee a thousand dollar stipend to, to do whatever they wanted to do to their home office to make it workable for them. And that's, I mean, for us, for a medium, even for a large firm, it doesn't matter how many employees you have at that point. Chances are you're spending more than a thousand dollars forever to house each one of those employees if you're renting space. So eliminating your rent bill, there, there is no, there is no stipend too large to accomplish that if it works for the, for that business. Yeah. Look, I think Ted, ultimately companies are going to have offices. Um, they're going to need a place to get together. They're going to need a central place. They need to train people. They need to have a culture. They need to maintain that culture. Um, they are going to have offices. What these offices are going to look like, no one knows yet. Yeah. Um, we were talking, I think, before the show started about um, the, the, the hotelization of office space. And, and that was a trend for a while. And it doesn't ever seem to die completely. But... Is, is that, you know, you've mentioned something in, in looking at what tenants are looking for that hoteling, you know, sharing common resources and, and you don't really, 
have anything that's yours space-wise as an employee, but whatever is there you grab and use and then you leave. Is that is that where we're going? Yeah, I, I do see that. Um, it was um, up at Standard & Poor's space, for example, and they converted like a third of their space to lockers. So their employees and their employees circle through the spaces and they, they have lockers that they have, but they don't have a desk. So they have to put their stuff in the locker every night. Um, and then they, they're assigned to a desk for the day. So the hoteling concept. So what, what is, I struggle with what the benefit of that is. And, and I suppose I do that coming from an environment where like, I've, I've always had my own desk. And, and so I'm, I'm the wrong person to, to evaluate this, but hoteling seems to combine all of the great benefits of cheaper rent because it's a smaller floor plan and smaller space with all of the negative effects of having your employees never feel like they belong there. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's an interesting cultural choice. Yeah. Um, and look, it may not work. Some of these experiments don't work. I mean, you know, two years ago, many of the law firms went to a predominantly open floor plan as opposed to offices for all the attorneys. I think that doesn't work. You know, so, as I said, sometimes um, these ideas of space planners are not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, anybody thinking, oh, we don't need, we can have attorneys in bullpens, not offices, has, has never met the wrong side of the attorney-client privilege. Like you, you, you kind of need closed spaces for people practicing law. A hundred percent. Exactly. And, and, you know, the, the attorneys and other, other workers that really have to think and need quiet and, yeah. and they need closed offices. Or, or people who are introverts like me. Um, so well, I don't believe you're an introvert, by the way, if you run this show. You're probably like most people, which is a mix of both. I'm, I am, I, I did, I will, I will nap for an hour after this show. I'm, I'm a, I'm a good solid <laughs> introvert, but I appreciate the comment. Um, one of the things that comes up in the idea of hoteling or, or shared office spaces, and that I think really plays into the pandemic concerns is that one of the things companies are looking for is, is being able to give their employees a feeling of safety. There's there, we now have a premium on employees feeling safe and, you know, coming off of a, an inf <laughs> a pandemic built around an infectious disease uh, that no one in, still entirely understands. The idea of using someone else's phone from yesterday is not in line with people feeling safe. People are, it's like going out for communal food. That's not going to happen for a little while. Yeah. No, I think that's a fair point. Um, and that's one of the challenges uh, in the hoteling concept and, and um, the whole hybrid model. You know, some landlords are saying, well, yeah, the companies will be hybrid, but they're not going to cut down on the amount of space they take. In fact, they could be taking more due to health concerns and they're going to want to keep workers more separate and give them more workspace, each individual worker. Right. But if the rents are plummeting, then they could end up with more, more of a footprint for yeah. a lower rental bill. Yeah. So I, 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 we were talking about this uh, earlier, co-working 
and specifically co-working businesses. So uh, locations are closing. Some of them are closing up shop. WeWork had its failed IPO in 2019. And, um, and, and thanks to the, the bright people at the, the, the bankruptcy industry newsletter petition, I know that in 2019, their S1 reported an average lease length of 15 years and minimum lease payments of $47 billion. Um, and, and they were upside down in 2019 in a vibrant market. Does anyone want, I mean, what's happening with coworking? You get locations closing and, and, and the underlying principles of the market are in complete tumult. Yes, correct. So it's a very mixed picture with coworking and you're hundred percent right. Um, some of these um, spaces are closing. I happen to have my offices in a WeWork. Um, and to give you a sense of what's going on there. So I am in a major New York City office building at 450 Lex on a floor plate that accommodates probably 300 people. Most recently, there have been maybe 15 people in the space. And that's over, you know, that's a high of the yeah. year. Yeah. So the space is empty, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, you know, the other problem we work has is many of the leases in the co-working were monthly leases. Right. So, so they all stopped in April. Exactly. So it was really easy for tenants just to move their stuff out and stop the lease. Now, that's the negative side. Now, on the positive side, especially WeWork, as you know, has um, started a SPAC. Right. And they've got some major investors injecting, apparently, you know, I read in the press $800 million um, into their SPAC, BlackRock, Fidelity, Starwood. Um, and the, the feeling is that <clears throat> the idea of the flexible space is going to be a very good idea for, for the, the office of the future. And in fact, they're, all of the landlords, many of them, I should say, are now creating their own co-working spaces. Interesting. Yes. So, so we're going we're gonna to see a co-working space that's branded but is secretly owned by Vornado. Exactly. Vornado has one. SL Green has Emerge. Tishman Spire has Zoe. Um, Newmark bought Notel, which was in bankruptcy. So they, they've got their own co-working. So the, the, the point is that I think the landlords recognize that for a lot of lease commitments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, I, I face the, the same decision-making process with my own firm. You know, we have three quarters of a floor in downtown Wilmington, Delaware at a, at a, a very nice office building, a block from the, the bankruptcy court in Delaware, which for my industry is, is kind of Las Vegas. Um, <laughs> and, and we don't spend any time there because, yeah. you know, our clients aren't in bank. We don't find our clients by walking to the bankruptcy court. And we can either work from home or we work in our client's location. So we don't need to be in an office and our lease is up next year. So, you know, we're, we're very seriously considering just putting our admin people and all of our files in a shared working space with a, a, a leased office. And when we need a conference room or we need to be in Delaware, getting an itinerant conference room or, or an itinerant office space and saving a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in rent. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, um, it makes some sense. And, you know, you're, uh, as we were talking before, you know, you're, you're a very established firm. Right. You're not a startup. You right. have your company culture. 
you know, probably everyone you work with knows exactly what their job is, what you want from them. So you're at a different stage of the business cycle than a startup that may need that office more because they need sure. the collaboration. Sure. And, and interesting, st- interestingly, startups are probably not the ones who are going to sign a 10-year lease. They're going to either demand shorter terms, which maybe they can do now, or they're going to go to the WeWorks or the shared office spaces. Yes. Yeah. And, well, that's, that's an interesting dichotomy, but it gets back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, uh, you know, the, the younger, the newer employees uh, benefit far more from the communal environment than the older, more established employees, because they already know what they're doing anyway, or, or at exactly. least one would hope. And the newer employees probably don't have like the nice apartments or houses that the older employees have. And they're probably working at, you know, a desk in the bedroom. Right. Right. Well, Ruth, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Ruth Culpaper is a founder of Wharton Property Advisors. Links to Ruth's and Wharton's social media and websites will be available on our website under this episode's show notes. Join us next time as we begin a multi-part dive into the life of the working musician. Somewhere between sending demo tapes to try and get a bar gig and being jetted from city to city to sleep while the roadies pack up the stage, there is an existence that working musicians live that few outside that sphere ever really see. Our guest has operated at every level of the working musician field and joins us to talk about it. Join us next time with multiple Dove award-winning, Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Jennifer Knapp for the many lives of the working musician. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.